Open your Bibles with me, if you have one anyway, or your device, <laughs> to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. 1 Thess. By the way, the title slide, it, my wife, uh, she commented, she said, it looks like a baseball team. And I said, I was in a baseball mood. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, batter up. That's right. Oh yeah, Ed's, a, Ed's an umpire. So anyway, this church at Thessalonica, we, we began last week by looking at the beginning of this first letter to the Thessalonians, as, as we did so, we traced the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Silas. Remember, we talked about how they ended up coming together. Uh, that We looked at their steps all the way back to their time in the city of Thessalonica as they traveled together on Paul's second missionary journey. You see here in the first slide that we have uh, just this long kind of winding trip that they had. The green line is, there's a green line now. There you go. Uh, that's their outbound trip, and, and then Paul's inbound trip going back to Jerusalem, then to Antioch on the blue dotted line. So anyway, we, we traced that, and we're not going to revisit that, but <laughs> they, they worked their way to Thessalonica. They arrived at Thessalonica from uh, the city of Philippi, uh, and there they spent, we're told, three Sabbaths. So they were there for three weeks. Now, we don't know how many days or weeks they spent in the city beyond that, but we do know that that's what uh, Paul relates here as he writes to the Thessal or what Luke related as he wrote about Paul's time there, that they were there for three Sabbaths. We see that in Acts chapter 17. So traveling a short distance now to the city of Berea after that, because what happened in Thessalonica, they were there for that short amount of time. The reason that they were there for very long was some Jews became envious because evidently huge crowds were coming to uh, to know Jesus. They were forsaking their idols and all, and so uh, they the Jews got they got pretty sideways and they went down to the marketplace, got some got some some tough guys, and essentially it stirred the city into an uproar. And so they went from there to the city of Berea, which is only a, a short distance away. It was about I don't know thirty miles, something like that. Uh, and so they started to, they set up shop there. As was Paul's custom, whenever he went to a new city, the first place he went was to the synagogue because he wanted to reach out to his countrymen, to the Jews first, and also to the Greek. We looked at that in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. That was the pattern that Paul had as he traveled about the empire to these different cities and began to present the gospel of Christ to them. So, Similar circumstances happened at Berea. Uh, actually, the Jews from Thessalonica went down and <laughs> they chased them and, and stirred up trouble in Berea to where Paul now had to leave by himself. He left Timothy. He, he gave Timothy the church. He said, Timothy, I want you to go back and I want you to nurture that church at Thessalonica. And he left Silas there. We don't know what Silas was doing, but we know that those two men stayed behind as Paul now traveled by himself to Athens. Uh, so he goes down to Athens. Things don't go tremendously well there. Very small harvest compared to what they had seen in Thessalonica. And so from there, he makes the 40-mile trek west to the city of Corinth, which was a huge city in that day. So there he met up with a tent maker by the name of Aquila uh, and his wife Priscilla. They were exiles from Rome because Claudius had exiled the, the people from the, the Jews out of Rome. And they had set up shop, essentially, in Corinth. And so Paul joins them, and he begins to settle in. By He lives with them for a while, 
and all of that. So he had sent for Timothy and Silas to come in to join him there and to make haste in doing so. He wanted them to be together again. So soon enough, Timothy and Silas showed up in Corinth and that would give them ample opportunity at that point to to begin to discuss the things that were going on in Thessalonica. Again, a huge movement of God going on in that city. Uh, And we'll look at that more this morning as we go. So uh, their time had been, even though their time had been cut short, uh, a remarkable thing was going on as they presented the person and the work of Jesus the Christ to the people there, uh, a Gentile city. Uh, in Acts 17, we're told that as a result, a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women had joined uh, Paul and Silas. They chose to, to tag on to what these guys were doing. So remember, though, too, we're writing to a church that's in pagan territory. That's really important to understand. Paul's primary mission was to the Gentiles. Peter's primarily was to the Jews. But he never, he never moved away from the burden that he had for his Jewish countrymen. We see that in Romans 9, 10, and 11 very clearly. And, and you know, we, there's great, I, I could just go teach that all <laughs> the rest of our time. But uh, to stay on course here, Thessalonica is the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. Uh, and it is steeped in the Greek and Roman pantheons of idols and gods. You've got to understand that. This is not, he's not dealing with religious people here. He's dealing with people that are into some pretty <laughs> dark stuff. And so as they're reaching, they're reaching these people, they're seeing them turn from their idolatrous ways and embrace Christ. Interesting too, from Thessalonica, it was about 50 miles to the southwest to Mount Olympus. Now Mount Olympus was like the center of, of pagan worship in those days is where it was the, the pantheon of these gods where they were alleged to have resided. And we know, and we can get into other parts of the scripture, especially in 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about the demonic activities behind all of that, because it was clearly demonic. And, and so what we're seeing is people being delivered from the jaws of hell. And, and folks, we have different stuff that draws at us, and we'll, we'll talk about idolatry as we go along here, but we live in a culture where people are in the grips of the jaws of hell. And we need to understand that there's a very serious charge on our lives as believers to reach out. So that's free, by the way. That wasn't in my notes. Remember, too, that 1 Thessalonians is the earliest of Paul's epistles. I believe it is. Some say that it was Galatians, but uh, I really think that that better scholarship leans on the side of 1 Thess. So uh, for what it's worth, I do believe that this was the first time that he put a quill to the page, and began to write to these people. And we understand, we talked about last week, the providence of God. Paul, he tried several times to get back to Thessalonica. And he says, every time I tried, Satan thwarted me. I wasn't able to come. So what does he do? He resorts to writing. What does that do for us? We get to read it this morning. So again, we don't understand what's going on in our lives so often. We don't see, we see bits and pieces of situations and circumstances and all of that. But we've got to understand. It's one thing for us as Christians, it comes off of our lips really easy to say, well, God's in control. But folks, I'm going to tell you, God's in control. We see that through the pages of scripture over and over and over again. So now in Corinth, he's writing back to the Thessalonians. And, and again, 
it would be the first time that he wrote those words, grace and peace to you. Charis, Greek, and shalom, Hebrew. He appeals to both. Now, we're accustomed to reading it. However, again, this is the first time that it was penned. The first time that we see it in the New Testament is here. It's also the first time uh, that we see faith, hope, and love. We talked about that last week. Not going to go into depth into that again this morning. But in here, in Thessalonians, it's faith, love, and hope. Because hope is the anchoring principle here in the book of First Thess. It's all about the hope that we have in Jesus' return. It's all about the hope that we have in the coming of Christ. It's all about the hope that we have that this life ain't it. So as Paul writes, he encourages them as he speaks in verse 3 of their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. Faith, hope, or love, and hope. Uh, In verse 4, he ties all of that together to the fact that they're the elect of God. And oh man, you know, there's so much controversy about that, and I really don't think there needs to be. If you want to know if you're the elect of God, choose Christ. Pretty simple. Essentially, election is the recognition that you were chosen before the foundation of the world to belong to him, to produce fruit for him. Uh, we live in time. We live in, in the space-time continuum and eternal principles. Sometimes we're just not wired to understand all of the intricacies of that. It's like trying to figure out the Trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. You know, we, we can grasp it. We can understand it. And, and we should believe it. Because if you don't, then you get the person in the work of Christ wrong. But that doesn't mean that we're going to understand all the nuts and bolts about it. It's an infinite thing. And in our finite bodies, in our finite minds, we can reach only so far. And then I call it smoke starts coming out of my ears, circuit breakers start to pop. And it's like, okay, Lord, I'm just going to trust you for that. That's how it is with election and predestiny. Um, It's interesting. They had chosen Christ. In doing so, they came to the realization that Christ had chosen them. Now, in verse 5, he concludes this train of thought by stating simply that the things which had taken place among the Thessalonians had not been a work of man. He said, look, it wasn't us. We are just simply vessels through which God wants to move and work. And, And that's the same again as we experience today. He says, for our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So what he's saying here is that he and Silas and Timothy, they lived well among them. They hadn't tried to con anybody. There was no sleight of hand. Uh, They certainly weren't doing it for the money. (laughs) And so they, what what he's saying in that is they had no other agenda other than what Paul would later tell the Corinthians when he wrote back to Corinth from Ephesus in 1 Corinthians 2, Uh, Verse 1, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, and he's talking about the state of mind he was in now as he's in Corinth, writing to the Thessalonians. He says, When I first came to you, I didn't come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And folks, we want to learn to think like Jesus. Why? Because we want to determine, at least in this church, not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. We are not going to get out there and start championing a bunch of causes, good causes. We'll pray for you. We'll get a, come alongside. But we're not a cause-oriented church. We are a Christ-oriented church. Out of that 
flows fruitful service. So all that had gone in Thessalonica, what Paul's point is, is it was due to the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was God who was directing the lives of these men. So we're going to pick it up. We're going to start in verse 6 here of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. And he says, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Now, the Greek word for followers, followers here, it's an interesting word. It's the word mamites, and it's where we get the word mime, all right? In other translations, it's rendered imitators of us. We'll talk about that more as we go along. But I share, this is something that, that just was impressed on my heart as I prepared. I want to talk to you about Big Jim. Big Jim, he was a mountain of a man. He was a whiskey-guzzling, chain-smoking native of Florida with a booming voice and a mild southern accent. He was the type of guy that, if he was in the room, (laughs) you definitely knew that Jim was there. Now, before any of us came to know him, Jim called the Calvary Chapel in California that I was a part of for many years and asked to have a meeting with the pastor. So as the two men, he got together with Pastor Bob. It was my pastor. I was on staff as a pastor there, but he got together with Pastor Bob and uh, he explained to Pastor Bob that he was an entrepreneur and that he wanted to give a large sum of money to the church. Now, Bob lovingly turned Jim down. He discerned that Jim didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And what the Lord showed Bob in that moment was that Jim was attempting to placate his own conscience by giving money to the church. Great insight, wisdom. So Bob turned the conversation at that point to Jim, explained the love of God to him. He told him, there's a love that's available to you, Jim, that that far exceeds any worldly wealth or, or possessions or anything that you could ever amass. Jim was troubled by Bob's response. He, and he was puzzled. He's like, I'm, I want to write a big check here. Why won't the church receive it? So he cordially thanked Bob for his time. And their meeting ended. Months later, Pastor Bob and I and some others from our church were, went to a pastor's conference. It was in the fall of 2001. And the first day, Monday, had been pleasant enough. It was, we got checked in, got our rooms, got settled in, had some great teachings and all. Then on Tuesday, September 11th, we awoke to that national nightmare that so many of us remember all too well. As several hundred church leaders from all over Northern California looked on, we watched the surreal images in real time on the two giant screens in the front of the conference center of the second plane flying into the World Trade Center. In the midst of the mayhem, trying to figure out what had happened at the Pentagon and what was going on with the the plane that went down in Pennsylvania, Pastor Chuck Smith, uh, you may have seen the movie, that that guy, uh, he stepped up to the podium and he said, look, obviously the conference is over. Go home. Open your churches. These events have produced a deep wound in our communities. People are going to be searching for answers. And he went on to tell us, he said, you know, they need the hope of Jesus Christ and the assurance that that comes from him in their lives at this very uncertain moment. So we made the several hour trip home, got home in time to head down to the church and open it up. It's a Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday early evening. Within a very short period of time, our sanctuary was about 100 feet long, Within a very short period of time, it was packed to standing room only. Now, remember, at that moment, we didn't know what was going on. The skies were closed. All air travel had been shut down. There were guys that were speakers at the conference from Philadelphia, and they were still trying to figure out how to get home. 
We were a nation in shock. We didn't know if we were at war or if there was more mischief and mayhem coming. We had no idea at that point. All we knew was that something horrible had taken place. You know, I was thinking about it. That service on that Tuesday night was one of the most powerful moments that I have ever experienced. Uh, Emotions were running high. Everything from fear to despair to grief, intense anger. Even our singing was different. As we, as we lifted our worship up to the Lord, it was, there was like a plaintive plea to God. I mean, we meant it. We weren't just singing songs. The word had gone out that night as well. The gospel was presented. Many people responded. And for a few, 9-11 would become the first day of their new lives. Now, I'll never forget, and this is what I wanted to get to, as the place emptied out, I was standing in the front of the sanctuary, I was looking back and sort of in the center, but off to the right a little bit, there was Big Jim, sitting alone, sobbing. He responded to Christ's offer of salvation. He went on to relate to us that he arrived earlier that evening in a blind rage. He said, I just had to get to church, but I, I'm mad. I was so mad. I was, I was enraged. But by the time the service was over, he was a changed man. Before long, Big Jim was a fixture in our church. and He was there whenever the doors were opened. No longer was he an angry man. Anger had turned to joy. Despair had turned to hope. I was so blessed to watch this happen in this man's life and blessed over and over through the years to see the miracle of regeneration, redemption taking place in the lives of people, some of you included. Pretty soon his wife, Aggie, uh, I went to their Facebook page last night. It's it's still up. They've been with the Lord for years, but uh, looking at pictures of Big Jim and his wife and just going back and revisiting all of that, all that I'd seen go on in this man's life. Um, as soon as wife came to the Lord, uh, and I watched Jim yield one area of his life after another to the Lordship of Christ. Didn't happen overnight, but it did happen. As the Lord put his hand on different areas of this man's life, uh, it was amazing. He wasn't supposed to be, where he was headed that night was to the cocktail lounge, where he ended up with, uh, was at church. They served faithfully in our church for years. Still on Sundays, I could still, I, I knew Jim was there and I didn't even, I, like I said, the place is a hundred feet long and I don't know how wide because he had that booming voice, that Florida accent. And you knew when Jim was in the house. Yeah, that kind of a thing. He carried a pocket full of little hard candies and he wasn't, he wasn't some you know, weirdo or anything like that. But the kids got used to coming up and saying, hi, Jim, and he'd pop a little piece of candy into their hand and off they'd run, filled with the love of Jesus. So what's Paul saying here in verse 6? He's saying in the midst of great difficulty, this group of pagan idolaters in Thessalonica had responded to the gospel, to the preaching of the word of God, which was empowered by the Holy Spirit. As they responded to the power of the Spirit, speaking through God's word, this is where free will would meet predestiny. Let me put it simply. Even though Jim had rejected the offer of salvation months before, on 9-11, again, Jim wouldn't be found at the cocktail lounge that he liked to go to all the time. The Holy Spirit had been working through his word. The gospel had been and now once again was being proclaimed. Although he had resisted months before, when the call went out, the message of salvation to repent and believe 
Jim realized that he wasn't going to find the solution to his broken life through giving money to a church or by drowning it with alcohol. That's when Jim's will participated in response to the Holy Spirit's prompting. God had had initiated it. It wasn't Jim's idea. He had chosen Jim. As God spoke through his word, the Holy Spirit was working through that word and pulling at Jim's heart. Jim's free will came in to play as he responded to that call of God in his life. At the moment he believed in Jesus, he became a follower of us as we pointed the way through God's word for Jim to now be a follower of Christ. That's what Paul is saying here was going on in Thessalonica. In the context of 1 Thessalonians 1, the word followers means imitators or emulators. This emulation, it goes beyond mechanically imitating Paul and Silas and Timothy. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, he says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. There are a number of other passages where Paul talks about imitate me as I imitate Christ. The new Christians there in Thessalonica, they saw the essence of of this gospel team, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, in how they lived under the power of God and the dynamic of the Holy Spirit. The Thessalonians followed the character and commitment of these men, not their personalities or their winsomeness or their charisma. That's dangerous. We'll talk about that. In verse 7, he says, you became examples to all Macedonia and Achaia who believe. So the second slide here, I want to talk about Macedonia and Achaia make up a huge area in southeastern Europe, over 50,000 square miles, and roughly the same area that modern-day Greece occupies. Now, at that time in the first century, Thessalonica was about 200,000 people. Right now, it's a little over 300,000, I think 319,000, something like that. As you see in this third slide, the ruins there, I mean, this city still exists, and the ruins are surrounded by high-rise buildings. It's a really interesting place. So now, when he talks about you became examples uh, to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe, the word there is the Greek word tupos. And what it means is it's, it means a type. Uh, it means to strike or to leave an impression. If you've ever used a, an old-style typewriter, you know, the, the ribbon's there and the paper's behind it and the type flies up, makes an impression on the ribbon and it transfers through and you have an impression from that type, okay? You ever heard somebody say, well, he really left an impression on them. That's kind of where that came from. So what, they're, what he's saying here is you Thessalonians, you're leaving a big impression on these people all around you. You're an example. Interesting, Paul singles out no other church as a standard for other churches to follow as he did with this church. The question that comes to me is why? Uh, What was so unique about their ministry? Uh, And and folks, I believe the answer, we'll see it in verse 8 here as uh, coming up on it, where he says, they shared the gospel in every place. That was what made them the cutting edge. That's what made the difference. They were fulfilling the great commission in their lives individually and as a church. The Thessalonian church was a model for others to follow. This church, it wasn't the ideal church, but a model church because it was effective in communicating the gospel to others. So you look at it, you think, well, what's he talking about? You know, why why is this church such an example? There are no programs there. Uh, They didn't have any methods. They didn't have some slick TED Talk presentation. 
I mean, you know, it wasn't canned. It wasn't organized. It was a bunch of people that came to love Jesus, and they can't wait to tell other people about it. He's saying this church is contagious. It's infected all the surrounding regions. Everybody's talking about that church at Thessalonica is essentially what's being said here. And it all started with very humble beginning. Three men on a trip together with a desire to make Christ known in the cities that they visited. And their visit to Thessalonica had only lasted three weeks. And look what God was doing through that time. Pastor Chuck, Chuck Smith, he often said, uh, I remember the first time he said this, I was sitting in class at Bible college and he was teaching one day and, and he said, healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. And I thought about that and I realized that what he was talking about, that's the heart of evangelism. Folks, it's, it's, yeah, crusades are great. The big, the big deal, the, you know, the big tent or the big stadium or whatever, those are great. I'm not, that's not, I'm not putting that down at all, but that's not the heart of evangelism. Uh, evangelism, evangelism first reveals itself primarily through your life and mine, through a Christian's life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, that Christians themselves are living epistles. An epistle is a letter. We're reading the epistle to the Thessalonians. Known and read by all men. So a great majority of Christians throughout history have come to know Jesus through the personal witness of other Christians. That's how God has designed it. That's how he set it up. I'm not saying anything is wrong with evangelizing in, in, a, in an organized way or through passing out, whatever it is. But what I'm saying is a changed life changes a life. Healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. Verse 8. He says, for from, from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that you don't need to say anything, or so that we don't need to say anything. So when Paul speaks uh, of the word of the Lord sounding forth, he's referring to uh, uh, this uh, the, the example that the Thessalonian Christians were having. It was, he's referring to their witness. Now, sounded forth, it, it, it's the same wording that's used for like a trumpet blast, a loud noise. What he's saying is the word, that the work that the Lord has done among the Thessalonians had become so well known over this entire region that everybody was talking about them. Their work, their witness was sounding forth. He says, your examples to all that are in Macedonia, Achaia, but not only there, but in every place that your faith towards God is spread abroad. Now, I want to understand a couple of things about Thessalonica here. It was on the, it was called the Ignatian Way. All right. The Ignatian Way was the like super highway in the first century that connected the Roman Empire together. All right, it was a major trade route. And if you wanted to go east, you took the Ignatian Way. If you wanted to go west, you could go all the way to Cilicia across on the Ignatian Way. It was a huge road. So it's there that the gospel could spread. Thessalonica was also a major seaport in the first century, ideally situated for the word to go out wherever people were going. This place was a hub. Kind of like if you take a plane trip, you might end up in Denver or Atlanta because those are hubs. They're airports that a lot of planes come in and out of that are connecting to other places. So what essentially Paul is saying here is you've become a hub for the word of God to be spread abroad. And it started with three men on a trip, spending three weeks in a city that they knew nothing about prior to their arrival. 
amazing. Here's an interesting statistic. As of uh, August 11th, 2023, <laughs> there are a total of 642 churches in the Portland metro area, the Portland region. Have you ever driven by a church and thought, I wonder what's going on in that church? I, I do. I, I mean, churches are kind of my thing. Um, <laughs> who pastors that church? I remember a few years ago, I got, I got an email off the church website out of the blue from a guy that was a home fellowship leader 40 years ago when I first gave my life to Christ. I joined this home group. This guy was the home group leader. He was assistant pastor at this church. He was, man, I was driving by Calvary Chapel, and I, I thought, I wonder who's pastoring that church. <laughs> and we go have lunch you know, every few months since. Uh, wonderful guy, just great reunion and all of that. But you know, I, I go by churches, I wonder what's going on in there. <laughs> what, is it, what does that church stand for? What do they believe? Uh, unfortunately, I got a call this week uh, from a church locally that's kind of gotten off into the weeds, and they're teaching a book and discouraging Bible study in favoring a book. And it's like, oh, and I don't want to go into it. But I'll tell you what, there's lots of stuff out there that will pull us away from devotion to this, to the Word of God. So you see the building, you wonder, what's going on? <laughs> I don't know anything about them. But it's at moments like that, gang, I have to remember that's not God's plan for his church. God's plan for the church is not for the outside world to wonder what's going on inside the church. It's for the inside of the church to go outside to a lost world. The Great Commission, it's not let's go in. The Great Commission is let's go out. That's what the Thessalonian church was all about. That's what they were doing. That's why Paul is saying you're an example as a church. You're a pattern sounding forth to all those around. People are talking about your church. It's important because, again, here's a church without any of the amenities. They, they don't have any of the benefits or the stuff that we have today, but they are getting it right because they're holding up the gospel of Christ and they're faithful to the word of God. It's a brand new baby church. A bunch of people that prior to this didn't know nothing about nothing as far as Jesus went. And here they were involved in this powerful, powerful move of God. He says, you're an example. You're a pattern. People are noticing. Interesting, going back to Big Jim, he followed us as we followed Christ. And then as he grew in his relationship with the Lord, people began to become drawn to him. And then they were following him because he was following Christ. And so it goes. Paul essentially saying, you followed us as we followed the Lord. Now others are following you because you are following the Lord. Pretty simple. Verse 9, but they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Folks, it's vital to understand this dynamic. Paul here, he commends the Thessalonians for turning from idols. Now, an important distinction here is he's not commending them for turning from idols to them. He commends them for turning from idols to God. It's not about men. It's not about the dynamic, slick speaker. It's about the Lord. All too often out on the spiritual landscape, uh, we see where men are employing all manners of devious schemes, methods to entice men to turn to them, often at the expense of turning to the God of the Bible. I call it shepherdolatry because, you know, we, we could get in, we could fall into that. It's subtle, at times not so subtle, but it's a form of idolatry and it's dangerous where you begin to elevate the man. 
don't fall into it. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about a larger ministry that has remained faithful and true to God's word. There are larger ministries out there that are fantastic. I'm talking about charlatans here. I'm talking about people that would draw men away after themselves. As Paul warned the Ephesian elders there at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, men will come to draw men away after themselves. It becomes a form of idolatry. Second Timothy 4 verse 3, we read, For the time will come when they won't endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Folks, that is happening in our world a lot. You know, I I pray that, I mean, if this is your church home, praise God, we love you, we want to have you here. If it's not, and you choose to make it somewhere else, make sure that they're teaching and they're studying God's Word. Not from the Bible. I like to tell people we don't teach from the Bible. And usually they get kind of a gasp like, what? You don't teach from the Bible? <laughs> what I mean is we don't teach from the Bible. We teach the Bible. And there's a difference. I can cherry pick some weird verse out of the backwaters of some book and then spin a thing for an hour long and have you guys thinking, wow, that was really something. And I've essentially given you some therapeutic, moralistic, deistic stuff. This isn't a sight class. It's the word of God. Paul was very clear. He didn't want turn from idols, men from tur- to turn from idols to him. He wanted them to turn to and to serve God. Now, in the first century, an idol was usually, it was like a small statue or a trinket, which represented one aspect or another of the Greek and Roman pantheons of gods. I mean, yeah, we go back in the Old Testament and look, they had all kinds of idols there, but I'm just talking about what was contemporary in Paul's day, what he's addressing with, what he's dealing with here with this pagan culture that he's reaching into at Thessalonica, also at Corinth. But let's talk about idolatry in our day. For us, an idol, by definition, is anything, and I want to underscore anything, which competes for your affection towards God. Have you ever noticed that false teachers play upon the inordinate affections that men and women have for things other than God? The prosperity gospel, it promotes, actually, it promotes idolatry. Think about it. Oh, no, the guy didn't say, I'm going to now promote idolatry. No, it's a whole lot more subtle than that because there's always a thin veil of spirituality to it. It's dangerous. False teachers, they'll endeavor to to convince you that God wants you to be financially prosperous. Ah, yes, I want to be financially, oh, yeah. And it's just like, you know, it's it's the serpent in the garden with Eve. Has God really said? And if you're a mature believer or a maturing believer, you know that walking with the Lord has nothing to do with how financially prosperous or not you are. God prospers some people. And if he's prospered you in that way, I recommend highly you use that for the kingdom. Use it in your service to the Lord. If he hasn't, you are not some second class citizen that you just said you you don't have enough faith because he hasn't done that. I, I, I loathe the head trips that those kind of false teachers put on people and they promote idolatry because now my desire for prosperity is coming above my devotion to Christ. Fits the definition. Me-centered religion is a form of idolatry. It puts me, my welfare, my best, my interests above that which God may be doing in my life. It's an idol. When I, oh, I'll tell you what. (laughs) When I put anything ahead of my relationship with the Lord, 
I am headed for trouble. I, actually, I'm headed for a chastisement because he chastens those whom he loves. Now, also, idolatry certainly applies to areas of blatant sin in our lives. Vices such as the love of money or sex outside of marriage or alcohol or drugs, that kind of thing. But could also, idolatry could also be something that's not inherently sinful, such as sports, relationships, health, even a spouse, some hobby, you name it. Again, it's anything that I place more emphasis upon than I do my relationship with God. And we need to have our, our, our priorities straight. It is Jesus first. It is God first. And then it's my, my marriage. And then it's my family. Then it's my you know, ministries and all of that. And as we understand and we order our lives in a way that is consistent with the biblical witness, our lives will work. Verse 10, he says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So if I'm getting home late uh, you know, from a meeting, some ministry function, I call my wife to let her know. She's either going to tell me, I'll see you tomorrow, <laughs> or she's going to say, I'll wait up for you. The word wait here in verse 10 literally means to wait up. <laughs> it means to wait for, to expect someone or something. Now, the Thessalonians were waiting. They were waiting up for the Lord's return, and they waited with anticipation. We order a new car. We wait with anticipation. We want that baby to be delivered. I'm on the phone. Is, is it there yet? Is it there today? How about... I'll call you tomorrow. You know, we have, we anticipate things in our lives. And that's what he's saying here, that they wait for his son from heaven. Yeah, that guy, the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. They remained expectant concerning the future event of Christ's coming. Now, there's a connection between those who effectively share their faith and those who wait for Jesus' coming. This isn't just happenstance. Paul's not throwing out random thoughts here. This is all connected. He's saying, you're, you're an example, you're a model, and oh yeah, you're the ones that are waiting for his return. It's connected. Because the orientation in my life is different from those who live for the now. Uh, I don't wait up all night for somebody that I is, I'm expecting to arrive at 9 a.m. I'm getting up at 8. <laughs> or 8.45. <laughs> you see what I'm saying, though? Because in... in Folks, when, the, when his disciples would ask him, well, when are you coming? Oh my goodness, my tablet just rebooted. <laughs> we'll figure that out. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Got a weird screen. That just put a little panic in my heart. It's like, <laughs> I use notes. Anyway, we, we want to have a posture of waiting. Uh, th- that posture, it produces something in me. It produces a sense of urgency for one thing. It also produces a sense of awareness that I don't want to be living my life in some dreadful way when the Lord returns. I want to keep short accounts with the Lord. The Thessalonians did two things and they did two things well. They served and they waited. And it's our responsibility as believers to do both. Jesus will also, he says here that he'll deliver Christians from the wrath to come. Now, I want you to understand something. Christians don't have to be delivered from hell sometime in the future. That is in the past. Okay, in John 5, 24, he says, Jesus talking here, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Talking about the wrath to come. Scholars want to argue 
So does this mean exemption or evacuation? There are two times that we see in God's word where the wrath of God will be accomplished in the lives of people that have rejected him. One is the great tribulation, that seven year period of hell on earth after the church is taken out of here. And we're going to get to that. The other is the ultimate judgment, the great white throne, where the wrath of God is accomplished in people's lives that have rejected. And that's after, that's when he wraps everything up. So, and, and there are people, scholars are split on this, on this particular verse. So what does it mean? Is it talking about exemption? You're exempt from his wrath or evacuation? You're going to get taken out of here before it starts happening. So is he talking about the great tribulation or speaking with general regard to eternal suffering? Here's my answer. Yes. <laughs> Folks, which one of those two wraths do you want to be? You know, I, we get hung up on stuff. We, we get, we, and he's talking about the wrath of God. And you can fall on one side of that or the other, and I welcome you to do that. There's some cautions there. I'll get to that. But really, I mean, if you want to argue about that, are you serious? They're all part of the same God and the same unwillingness that he has with the sin that's killing human beings each and every day. That's what his wrath accomplishes. So here's my take. <laughs> now, you're welcome to disagree, but you're not welcome to divide over it. Why? Because whether he means the wrath of the great tribulation or the ultimate wrath of eternity, either one must be urgently avoided. And that's our job. That's what the Thessalonians were doing. That's part of why the word was going far and wide with that church. They wanted to see as many people escape that wrath as possible. And that should be the the great burden in our lives as well. So when Christians divide over eschatological issues, which are up for grabs, and this one is... It's tantamount to handing the enemy a victory. Why? We don't want to argue about this stuff. We need to be careful in this study not to do that because there are controversial issues. And you know what? I'm going to teach that the church goes through a pre-tribulation rapture, that, the, that there is a great tribulation that happens on the earth, seven years of hell that breaks out, and then the second coming of Christ that comes at the end of that period of time. That's how we roll. You may not agree with that. That's okay. We still love you. You can be wrong. No, I'm kidding. But, <laughs> but seriously, I, I mean, it's not. It's not that that's a watershed issue because people have different views. Okay, that's my disclaimer. <clears throat> I believe that Paul references when he talks about wrath here, and he's talking about the wrath of the tribulation just before the millennium, just before the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. In Revelation six seventeen, he says, "For the great day of his wrath has come." And who is able to stand? Now, the Bible says there's going to be a great tribulation such as the world has never seen before. Tribulation means trouble, okay? Fancy Bible word. There's going to be a lot of trouble. The world's never seen this much trouble. This period of great tribulation is described quite graphically in the book of Revelation, beginning in chapter 6. Just read a a verse from, from there. There we see graphic descriptions of the wrath of God that's going to be poured out upon humanity, upon the world. Scary stuff, powerful imagery. Now the word from here, he says he'll deliver you from the wrath to come. It means away from God's wrath. This is one text which indicates that the church will not go through the tribulation period. And that's how I believe it's, it's, that's what I believe is going on here. That means that the, the means that Jesus will employ to deliver us from the wrath to come 
is the rapture itself. And we'll get to that and we'll discuss it in detail in chapter 4 because chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians is the great passage on the rapture, the snatching away, the, the being caught up together with him in the air. It's that passage that we've talked about and that gets tossed around in Christian circles. And we'll look at it. We'll do a deeper dive on it there. In context, what Paul is saying, the Thessalonians, they didn't need to prepare for the tribulation because they trusted Jesus would deliver them from it. We have the same assurance, folks. That's ours. That's a promise for us. And we do well to order our lives in light of it. So wrapping up, I want to look at three things. Humble beginnings. As I mentioned, I, yeah, I don't imagine that Paul and Silas and Timothy, I don't think that they could have imagined the work that would be done at Thessalonica just after three short weeks of being with that, those people. Is there an aspect of serving God that's on your heart and mind? Zechariah 4.10 has some great advice. He says, For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoiced to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. There the eyes of the Lord would scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Now, it had been a long day of small things for Zerubbabel because the work of the temple had lay in ruins for 20 years. He might have said to God, Well, what do you mean, day of small things? I've lived 20 years of small things. Even so, God told Zerubbabel not to despise the time of small things, to consider it as just another day. And many of God's choice workers, if many people, and I have known men personally, I've read accounts over and over again over the years, folks, people that are raised up to powerful positions, to positions of, of, of being able to influence and to speak into other people's lives, He uses a powerful season of small beginnings, small things. I love it when I see somebody sweep. We had a guy that wanted Harvey and I to ordain him one time. And I told this guy, I said, you want to know something? You want to know the guy that that I'm really looking to ordain? The guy that that I want to come and to teach our people? It's going to be the guy that's pushing the vacuum. It's going to be the guy that's there when nobody else is around and just doing the work of serving the Lord. It's going to be the guy that's out there just seeing something that needs to be done and does it. At, at, at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, there was a guy by the name of Romaine, and he was an ex-military drill sergeant, and he was Chuck Smith's right-hand guy. And he would get these dreamy-eyed young guys coming into his office saying, man, I think God's calling me to the ministry. He said, great, here's a broom. And he meant it. The first thing he said, you lost your seat in the sanctuary, son. <laughs> And he put them to work. Small things. Don't despise small things. Don't despise small beginnings. God will do wonderful things through it. I will resist somebody that wants to insert themselves right in to the thick of things because very often they're not ready. It's not because they're doing anything wrong. It's not because they're being punished. It's because it's a priceless time of shaping and preparation. And God does that. They're not days to despise. Don't fall into the temptation of despising a day of small things. Now, Satan doesn't despise a day of small things. He fears them because he sees what great things God does in them and brings out of them. Enough said on that. The second thing I want to look at, I was thinking about, you guys remember the milk commercials, Got Milk? Yeah. yeah. Here's, here's one. Got Idols? <laughs> right. I was actually picturing that on a milk carton. It's like, Got Idols? Seriously, though, are there any idols in your life that need to be torn down or weeded out? I often look at the church as a garden. I mean, there's great variety. You want to know something? Gardens get weeds, and they need to get torn out. In honest self-examination, is there anything in your life 
is taking priority over your relationship with Christ. Pull that weed up. Get it out. Perhaps it's that thing that came into your mind's eye as we've been discussing idolatry this morning. I don't know. I have perfect trust that God has a hold of your life. If you know Jesus, and he is very faithful to show us areas that are competing for him, he will not share. He will not share with some other thing in our lives. The essence of man's rebellion towards God is enthroning himself or some other thing in the place where only God deserves to reside. Seriously, take that idol, whatever it is, surrender it to him. The last thing I want to look at here is what are you waiting for? When we anticipate the rapture, folks, it purifies our souls. Each generation of believers from the time this was written until now have expected the Lord to come in their lifetime. And that's a right that we have. It's something by design. Jesus didn't give us the day. And like I said, it'd be the, like the difference between waiting up all night because somebody's going to show up sometime and knowing they're going to show up at nine in the morning. I ain't going to be doing much until then. Purifies our lives. We do well to anticipate that it might be in our generation. And, and folks, there have never been more birth pangs, more signs, more things that are in play as, as there are right this minute. But I refuse to be a false prophet and start telling you that it's going to be the day X. That's just not, that's just not part of it. Jesus was very clear. Whenever they asked him, he says, no, don't worry about when. Here's what you worry about. Be ready. Each day, we should affirm that perhaps Jesus will come today. That's what gives us the ability and, and the willingness and the desire to keep short accounts with the Lord. Uh, generations past, they were disappointed for sure because they really thought he was coming, but they weren't mistaken. Keep that in mind. We won't put off until tomorrow what we ought to deal with today if we are in a posture of waiting for his soon return. And I believe it's soon. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we race through these passages and, and as we uh, look at these things, this wonderful letter that Paul and, uh, and his friends Silas and Timothy, as, as Paul wrote, and uh, Lord, this is such wisdom, such depth, such instruction. Lord, burden our hearts for the lost. Burden our hearts for people that will experience your wrath if they don't turn, if they don't come, if they don't let the weight of their lives down on Jesus. Lord, give us a spirit of evangelism. We don't have to have the gift of evangelism to have the spirit of evangelism, just to, to be able to, to shout from the rooftops, Lord, that Jesus is Lord and that, he, that you have the answers for our lives. Lord, I pray for each one here this morning, those within the sound of my voice, perhaps online. Lord, you know the situations, the circumstances that we're dealing with. Pray, Father, that you would minister to each one in a powerful way. Lord, for those that are hurting, we pray that you would uh, comfort and, and, and draw near to them and that they would seek you for answers to perhaps painful questions, painful situations in their lives. Pray for all of us, Father, that you would continue to just work your will in our lives, that you would continue to draw us, to woo us. And Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Powerful love, a love so deep that we can't really grasp it, but we'll take all that we can get. So we come before you this morning in an attitude of humility and an attitude of worship now. We pray your will be accomplished in our lives and through our lives as we reach out to a lost and dying and, and really screwed up world. We give it all to you in Jesus' name.